the prophet Isaiah brought a message of judgment and hope to God's people. God's judgment was imminent, and that judgment would have bitter consequences. But beyond those consequences, there is hope. Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7, today's reading, is all about that hope. But when we're presented with such a hopeful view of the future, it really draws our attention to the fact that there is something wrong with the present reality. That would have been the case for the people of Israel and Judah who first received this message, and it's certainly the case for us. So today we're going to contrast present reality with future hope. And in so doing, we'll begin to see what Jesus offers the world, what Jesus offers us. So we're going to contrast darkness with light, despair with joy, and present reality with Jesus's messianic kingdom. But before we can do any of that, we need to know what time it is. In other words, we need to situate this prophecy in history so that we know where we stand in relation to it. So you'll remember that the high point of Israel's power and influence came during the reign of King David and then uh, during the reign of his son Solomon. It was Solomon who built the temple. But after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel split in two. The ten northern tribes known as Israel had their capital in Samaria, and the two southern tribes known as Judah had their capital in Jerusalem. So Israel was split into these two rival kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Isaiah repeatedly went to the leaders of Israel and Judah with his message of warning. But uh, like all of God's prophets, he was ignored. People didn't want to hear what he had to say. And so eventually, God's, uh, or Isaiah's prophecy of judgment and punishment is fulfilled. And it's the ten northern tribes, Israel, who are the first to fall. In 740 BC, they are conquered by the Assyrians, and over the next 20 years or so, they are carried off into exile in in Assyria. Uh, And they are gone forever, often known as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They will never reform into a nation. The two southern tribes, Judah, they managed to hold out a bit longer, actually more than 100 years uh, longer. Uh, But then in 597 BC, they were conquered by a new world superpower, the Babylonians. And over the next 10 or 20 years, they too were carried off into exile. Of course, this is a total disaster for God's people. But Isaiah also has a message of tremendous hope uh, that, that, that God will send a future king in the line of David who will lead God's people and bring justice and peace to the whole world. So when the people of Judah return from exile in Babylon and they begin rebuilding the temple, rebuilding Jerusalem, they have this hope of a future messianic king. And 400 years later, when Jesus is born, Israel are still awaiting their Messiah. But like all good stories, there's a twist. The Messianic prophecy of the Old Testament uh, is fulfilled in Jesus, but it's fulfilled in two parts. Now, if you ever go to the theater, you'll know that there's usually an interval 
a break halfway through the play. Actually, when I was uh, growing up, we used to have these at the cinema, and I expect it was the same uh, here in Australia. The, the, the film would stop halfway through, uh, a curtain would come across the screen, and people would appear in the aisles selling ice cream. And you'd get this little tub of ice cream and a little wooden spatula. Was this the same here? And you'd try and dig this ice cream out, and it was so solid you couldn't get, it, uh, get at it. That would keep you uh, occupied until the next part of the film came on. So it was a film of two halves. Now, there's a sense in which uh, messianic prophecy is uh, fulfilled in that way. We get two parts. Part one, Jesus is born. He lives. He dies. He's raised to new life. He establishes his kingdom, and he gives the church the mission and the task of building his kingdom here on earth until he returns. That's part one. And then we have part two. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. He will renew and restore creation, and he will fully establish his kingdom on earth forever. That's part two. Well, we live between parts one and part two. We live in the interval, if you like. But in this interval, we have far more to contend with than rock-solid ice cream and little wooden spatulas. So when we read Isaiah's prophecy... We are reading a prophecy that has been fulfilled in part. But just like the people of Isaiah's day, we are waiting for God to act in a very decisive way. And that's uh, what Advent is all about. So hopefully we now understand when Isaiah was writing. We understand what was happening with the people of Israel at the time. And we understand where we are situated chronologically in relation to this prophecy. So let's look at the prophecy itself, what it says about present reality and future hope, starting with the contrast between darkness and light. Uh, Near the beginning of the book of Isaiah uh, 2 verse 5, it says, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But God's people had chosen not to walk in the light. They were walking in the darkness, and so today's reading, verse 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And we know that the people of Israel were walking in darkness because Isaiah repeatedly warns them and pleads with them to turn back to God. Not only are they walking in darkness, but they are heading towards a much darker episode in their nation's history. Invasion, defeat, and exile. But Isaiah tells us that a light has dawned. It's a message of great hope. Psalm 136 verse 6 says, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I think any soldier would be able to identify with this. Uh, When it's the middle of the night and you're soaking wet and freezing cold, exhausted, trying to keep your eyes open, lying in a sentry position, watching and waiting. You want the dawn to come more than anything. And when it does, it is so uplifting. The whole world uh, looks different in the light. Uh, it, It completely changes our perspective. So the light, the dawn is a good thing. But the world is not like a watchman waiting for the dawn. The world doesn't want it. 
The world rejects the light. John 3 verse 19 says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The light exposes our evil deeds, and that's a real problem for us because there is stuff that we don't want to deal with. The stuff that we want to cling on to, the stuff that we don't want to give up. We think we know what's best for us. We think we know what makes us happy. You know, a person can hear the Christian message and, and it rings true. And they may even believe it, but then they might think, well, you know, if I give my life to Jesus, it means that a lot of things are going to have to change. And I don't know whether I want to change. A person can end up choosing darkness over light because they don't want to have the sin in their life exposed. They don't want to have to, 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 to deal with it. Because in dealing with it, there might be things that they need to leave behind. And we have a tendency to want to cling on to sin. We, we feel that we might be missing out. I think that's a, a, a big part of why many people uh, push the Christian message away. They, they don't want to miss out. They think somehow they're going to. But there's... There's great irony in that. Such a person has completely misunderstood the darkness and what it leads to. And they've completely misunderstood the light and what it brings. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So we're approaching Christmas and there's a sense in which Christmas could be quite confronting. After all, this is a celebration of the light coming into the world. But in our culture, we've done a very good job of disguising Christmas as something else. Uh, Santa's Grotto has been up in Orion since, well, I don't know, since about July. Uh, Everyone is pushing their budget and maybe even their credit cards to the limit buying presents. An increasing number of homes are beginning to look like uh, that house out of uh, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, you know, covered in about a million lights. Hard to imagine that film 30 years old now. Jingle bells and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer are thought to be Christmas carols. And by this point, everybody has already given up eating healthily because we've all resigned ourselves to the fact that we'll be a little bit heavier in January. And in amongst all of that, in amongst all of that kerfuffle, somewhere you might find a baby lying in a manger. It's a confusing and innocuous medley of things that are generally quite pleasant and not at all threatening. It's our culture's attempt to draw the blackout curtains, to prevent the light from entering into our lives. Now, don't hear me wrong. Christmas should be fun. Christmas should be a celebration. Christmas is worth the effort. But it's a time to turn towards the light, not draw the blackout curtains. So that's darkness and light. Next, we have despair and joy. Isaiah makes it clear that the dawning of this light will be the source 
of great joy. And he gives us examples of the kind of joy that will be experienced. Uh, But there are two sides to each example. With each example, there is something good that happens, but there is also something terrible that's averted. And the first example is that of a harvest. Uh, Verse 3 says, You have enlarged a nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. Now, if a harvest fails, it's not too much of a problem for us in 21st century Australia. We just import food from somewhere else. But in the ancient world and in the developing world today, the success or failure of a harvest is a life and death situation. So this is the kind of, a, of joy that's experienced when we have a good harvest as opposed to a famine. So the next example, we read, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And again, if you're a warrior dividing plunder, it is because you have fought a battle and won it. It's a kind of joy when you, uh, when you take stock of the fact that you're not lying dead on the battlefield. Instead of being killed, you're getting paid. Next example comes in verse 4. It says, For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. In the book of Judges, we hear the way that uh, Israel were, were terribly oppressed by a people group called the Midianites. And it got so bad uh, that the people of Israel were hiding in clefts and caves in the mountains. And whenever they did manage to plant any crops, the Midianites would... would uh, to come in and destroy the lot. So the people of Israel were impoverished and starving, and they cry out to God, and God raises up a leader, a very unlikely leader called Gideon, who eventually defeats the Midianites, uh, thus throwing off the yoke of oppression. You can imagine the joy when Israel moved from oppression to freedom. If you've ever seen footage of the celebrations that took place across Europe at the end of the Second World War, the, 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 that level of excitement and jubilation, something new beginning, uh, the, the darkness is being dispelled, that, that, that's the kind of joy that uh, Isaiah is talking about. The light coming into the world is a source of great joy. Instead of famine, harvest. Instead of death, bounty. Instead of oppression, freedom. Despair is turned to joy. And you know, all of those things apply to us when we receive Jesus, when we receive the light into our lives. So we contrasted darkness and light, despair and joy. Let's now contrast the present world order with Jesus's messianic kingdom. The light that Isaiah speaks of is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Isaiah describes his sovereignty. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The world is currently made up of numerous nations and governments, all of them corrupt to varying degrees. I mean, yes, there are despots and dictators and governments that hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons, but can anyone in the world truly say that their government is godly, righteous, and pure? Uh, Ray Davies, the lead singer of the Kinks, uh, 
the 60s group, a few old examples today, but his words are relevant, and he wrote these lyrics. Uh, Money and corruption are running, ruining the land. Crooked politicians betray the working man, pocketing the profits and treating us like sheep. And we're tired of hearing promises that we know they'll never keep. Uh, people are always getting frustrated with their governments, and often it's very easy to see why. Well, Isaiah tells us that the government will rest on Jesus' shoulder. There won't be lots of nations and governments. There'll be one, one nation, one government, one ruler, and his name is Jesus. Next, Isaiah lists a number of titles. Wonderful counsellor. Where do we go for counsel, for knowledge, for wisdom, for good advice? Where do we go for that? I mean, do we go to the self-help gurus, read their books and watch their videos? Well, we know, don't we, really, that they just want to make money out of us. Do we look to celebrities? Uh, They've got a lot of money, and they seem like they're successful. But actually, when we look at their lives, we realize they're no more sorted than we are. Uh, Do we look to mediums and spiritists? There are people who do that. And Isaiah warns expressly against this in the passage immediately before today's passage. It says, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? What about other religions? Well, there may be some wisdom to be gleaned there, but not one of them deals with the problem of sin. So ultimately, they can't help us. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 19 says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Isaiah points us to the wonderful counselor, the source of true wisdom. And then mighty God, everlasting father. Not father in the sense of the first person of the Trinity, but father in the sense of benevolent protector, which is the, 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 the task of the ideal king, to love and to protect his people, just as God loves and protects his people. So these two titles, Mighty God and Everlasting Father, reveal the fact that the Messiah will be divine. The Messiah will be God himself. Who do we want to be ruled by? Do we want to be ruled by man or God? I hope that we would say that it's infinitely better to be ruled by God. But if that's our position, then we must give up our autonomy and recognize our dependence on God. The next title we're given is Prince of Peace. It says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Endless peace rather than war, discord and bitter wrangling. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Uh, according to the New York Times, in the past 3,400 years, only 268 of them have been without war. Humanity have only been at peace for around 8% of recorded history. And I use the word peace loosely because the article um, uh, defines the word peace uh, as the, or or, sorry, the word war as an active conflict that claims more than a thousand lives. So during those years of so-called peace, how many skirmishes were there that cost less than a thousand lives? How many murders? How many fights? How many arguments? Human beings have never uh, lived at peace, not even for a day, probably not even for an hour. The Messiah will bring total and unending peace. And finally it says, 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Justice and righteousness instead of injustice and evil. Isn't that the kind of world we long to see? Well, that is what Jesus' messianic kingdom will look like. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but we're about to celebrate Christmas. Uh, Jesus came into the world. The Messiah has arrived. The light has dawned. So how come the world is in such a mess still? Well, it's because Isaiah's prophecy, along with all the messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, is to be fulfilled in two parts. The light has dawned. A child has been born. A son has been given, and it is cause for great joy and celebration, which is why Christmas and Advent are such a special time of the year. But Isaiah's prophecy also looks beyond the birth of Christ, beyond his life, his death, his resurrection, beyond the rapid expansion of the early church, beyond the church through the ages, beyond even this present day. The kind of world and the kind of governance described in Isaiah 9 is a future hope even for us. Jesus has established his kingdom, but it's not yet fully established. And that is why uh, the Christian message is so hopeful and exciting. Jesus will return. And when he does, it will be the most wonderfully cataclysmic event in the history of the universe. Right now, we're living in the time between the times. We're living between the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and his second coming at the end of the age. We are living in the interval. We don't have to walk in darkness. We have the light. We have Jesus. We don't have to accept the pessimistic view of our culture. You live. You die. That's it. There's nothing more. That's a despairing view of life. We can replace that despair with joy and hopefulness. We don't have to accept the corruption of this world as the norm. It's just a blip in eternity. Jesus' messianic kingdom will one day be fully established, a kingdom that will endure forever. Darkness is turned to light. Despair is turned to joy. And the present world order will give way to Jesus' eternal kingdom. Let's try and keep all of that in view as we head through Advent and into Christmas. It is wonderful news. It's exciting. And it is the most hopeful news we could possibly imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus into the world. And we recognize that this changed everything forever. But we also recognize that all is not well with the world. That Jesus' kingdom has not been fully established. And so we pray that right now in this interval, the time between the times, we will do all that we can as a church, as a community, as individuals, to usher in your kingdom, to point people towards the kingdom that will surely come when you return at the end of the age. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.